0: Turn with me to James 5, 13 to 20. Coming to the conclusion of James' letter this morning, his in a final exhortations. And this whole letter, what he's been doing is he's encouraging us toward a life where there's active faith. Faith that works in a life that's completely devoted to Christ that isn't divided between the things of God and the things of world, uh, this world. He says that's unstable to be divided like that, that we can't. We need to be completely devoted to God. And throughout it, there have been some themes that have come up. One of them is trials and suffering. He's talked about our need to persevere, to be steadfast. In chapter 1, last week, is to be patient in the midst of it, knowing that our God, our God who cares for us, is sovereign even over these things, and that he'll actually use them to sanctify us, to make us whole and complete. Then he's talked a lot about our speech, too, the power that our words have, especially to divide and to destroy. He's talked about our tendencies to do these very things, in showing favoritism, in cursing those made in God's likeness. In speaking evil against one another, in grumbling against one another. As we've gone through this, hopefully we've seen our own tendencies to do these same things as well. So, what are James' final words? How does he want to wrap everything up? Where does he want to leave us? Let's find out. Hear God's word from James Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. is the word of the lord let's pray god we thank you for your word and we ask for your help in it we ask that you would attend your word in our hearts and in our minds god that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see you that we would know you more deeply love you more dearly follow you more closely as a result of looking at your word this morning God, we need you. We cannot understand it apart from your spirit. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's your first instinct when something bad happens? When you get some bad news? If you're like me, your first instinct is to come up with a plan to fix it. To figure out how I can undo the damage. To work it out. These aren't bad things, right? We should be diligent. We should be prudent. We should work hard in our lives. Maybe our tendency is the other side to just complain, to blame, put it on other people. What about when something good happens? I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to share the news, right? I want to text or call Allison right away. We want people to celebrate with us, be brought into it. That's a good thing. But there's something missing in all of those responses, even the good ones. God. As James has written about the dangers of the tongue and what we say, he concludes his letter with how we actually should be using our tongues to pray. If our lives are completely devoted to God, then they must be marked by prayer. Taking everything to the one we love the one who loves us. We're gonna see that the church is to be a people who pray. Then at the very end, with James' closing thought, we're gonna see that the church is a people who pursue as well. First, we're to be a people who pray. Kind of has a couple groups here. Couple three, couple two tree. That's what you say here in Wisconsin, right? Individuals who pray for their own need, their own circumstances, their own situations in their lives. And then elders who are praying for the sick. And then the church who is praying for one another. And he kind of walks through these. So let's do that. Look at me at verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Here, James is talking about individuals praying in the circumstances of their own lives. Is anyone suffering? He must pray. That's a command. James isn't giving them permission. Like, we'll let him do it. No, he must pray. Pray. Is anyone cheerful? He must sing praise. Which singing praise is just a form of prayer. Augustine from North Africa, 4th century bishop there. That those who sing pray twice. We even see that in our liturgy don't we? As we're singing praises to God, we're praying to him, praising him for who he is and what he has done. And James covers the spectrum here, from suffering to cheerfulness, which implies everything in between. We must pray, no matter life's circumstance. And it makes sense, doesn't it? that when we recognize that God is actually in control of all of the situations in our lives, that we would pray to him, that we would go to him. When we're suffering, going through various trials, when we often can't even see why, we pray to the one who can. We can cry out to him. We can express our sorrow in our pain. We can confess that there are times when we feel no hope. The Psalms give language to all of this. The breadth of human emotion. Many of them are prayers in the midst of suffering. And they don't pretend like everything's fine. They're honest about their experiences, their thoughts, even their feelings of sometimes abandonment and despair. And yet they're praying to God. And they don't abandon the truth of who God is. They're anchored. The Lord loves them. That even though they don't see it, he's promised to be with them. He will ultimately set things right. So you can go to him, knowing that he hears you, that he loves you. As we saw last week, he's returning soon to set all things right. When things go well, We're to praise him for it and recognize that it's his hand that brought it about. I think sometimes it's easier for us to go to God when things hard happen, right? We see the need, and we're more quick to pray. When things go well, we forget about God. We assume it's what we've done. We've earned it. We've put in the work. We forget our need but it could have just as easily not worked out. Right? It's actually God who brought it about. For any of us who have successes and things going on, there are just as many people who have worked just as hard, who have done the same things, and it doesn't. But praise God for his goodness to us in answering prayers and providing us with success in different areas. His prayer, through all of these circumstances, that's what a life devoted to God looks like. One that recognizes His sovereign, loving hand, no matter life's circumstances. And it trusts Him. The old hymn says that through prayer, we hallow every pleasure and we sanctify each pain. That's what we're doing through prayer. And when we know that our God is a generous Father who only gives good and perfect gifts to his children. We go to him with everything. So ask, if there are trials or suffering in your life, are you persisting in prayer? It's easy to pray a couple times and then stop, isn't it? The verb he uses has a sense of ongoing. It continues. And this comes right on the heels of last week, James saying, be patient in the midst of suffering. We shouldn't have this assumption that God's going to answer the prayer and make it disappear like that. He just told us to be patient and then to pray in the midst of it. Right? It's so easy to pray at first and then give up on it as if God has given up on us. That's not the case. He's after more than our ease. He's after more than our comfort. He's after our hearts. He's after all of us. That in the midst of our suffering, we would know him for who he is and we would trust him through it and in it. On the flip side, are there blessings or joys in your life that have been absent praise that you just take for granted We forget about God when things go well. We're to sing praises to him, thanking him for all of the cheerfulness, all of the joy, all of the blessings in our lives. It's not mere lip service. Now, I don't know the football players' hearts, right, in their post-game interviews. But you get quite a few, praise God for that, and then on to everything they did and how great they are. Singing praises to God. Genuine praise to him. I think we're even tempted. I'm a pastor, right? So y'all say, that was a great sermon. I say, praise God. as That's my initial reaction. Sometimes that's true. <laughs> praise God that he is working. And sometimes I go through the motions. And I'm not actually praising God for what he's doing. But praise God for the blessings he gives us in this life. For the ways he works, let us not forget that he is good to us. To live out our faith in complete devotion to God, we must be a people who pray in all of life's circumstance. But it doesn't stop there with each of us praying in and for our own lives. Now James shifts to others praying. And throughout the rest of this passage, we're going to see that we actually need each other. That the Christian life isn't this one to be lived in isolation, but one within the context of community, within the church. Look with me at verse 14. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The sick, or the weak, isn't told to pray, unlike the first two told to call for the elders again a command and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord this anointing isn't some magic rite that brings healing the anointing is kind of setting the person apart for the attention of God saying this is who we're praying for asking God's healing hand to be touched on this person the word we use is consecrated, set apart for this. It's what the oil does. The oil doesn't heal. Even in the next verse, we see that it's the prayer of faith that has the effect, not the oil. We can notice a few things. The person is really sick. They're weak. They're probably bedridden. Can't get out of bed. You notice that they call for the elders to come to them instead of even going to the elders then this is the only time the preposition over is used in prayer we talk about it more i'll pray over this pray over that this is the only time that preposition is used and it's probably actually like physically over them as they're lying in bed sick and weak that the elders come and pray over them pray for them and it might be that the person is even too weak to pray for themselves And so others are brought in to lift them up in prayer. In their place. Have you ever felt so weak that you can't even pray? Do you need others to do it for you? Sometimes that's life in the body of Christ. What's the result? Look at verse fifteen. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The words here can refer to physical healing, being lifted up even from the bed, raised up. Or, what we all know, we ultimately need spiritually to be forgiven of our sins, to be raised up on the last day. But in this context, and in the context of James, he seems to be talking about the physical healing. And then possibly even sickness caused by sin. That's where the healing comes in. But then we have to ask, but what if God doesn't heal? Does that mean there isn't enough faith? I don't think so. Though James puts it in a pretty straightforward way here. Healing isn't guaranteed. And if healing doesn't happen, it doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't faith. You can think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he prays three times that this thorn in his flesh would be removed, which is most likely this physical ailment, and yet God didn't remove it. I think we'd have a hard time saying Paul didn't have faith. I'm not going to make that accusation. So how should we think of it then? I think a great place to start is with our catechism, which I would just recommend to you on the whole Anyway. It's a good foundation of theology for us to know what the Bible teaches and what we believe. But the question, what is prayer? The answer is, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. In the name of Christ, with confession of sin and grateful acknowledgement of his mercies. Thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. If we know God to be who he claims, who James has told us he is, then we can completely trust him. That we can submit ourselves completely to his will over and against what we might want. We can take our desires to God with an open hand and say, God, I want these things. But if you don't want them for me, I want what you want. It's better. You know better. You love me more. You want what's best. Isn't that how Jesus prayed even to the Father? Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating blood because he knows what's about to happen to him. And he prays, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's even what James said in chapter 4. Luke preached this passage. When we're making our plans, thinking we know what's best and we're going to do what we want to do. He says, you should say, if the Lord wills it, we will do this or that. So it may not be God's will To heal in this life. It wasn't for Paul. But if you remember what the result of Paul's not being healed was. It says that the display of the power of Christ was on display all the more. Paul concludes, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The word Paul uses for weak is the same word as sick here. We may not see it, but God's perfect will is being accomplished even in our infirmities. When he heals, and even when he chooses not to. And James says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. We often forget that healing has this spiritual aspect to it, the spiritual component, and sickness is, May as well. He says, if, I don't think most sickness is caused by personal sin. But I think some is. We often neglect that because we can't know for sure. In biblical times, there's probably an overemphasis on the direct connection between sin and sickness. You can think of Job, where all this is going on. We know it's not because of sickness, it's not because of sin, it's because he has faith in God. And the devil's trying to work something there. But what do his friends all say? Job, what sin have you committed that caused this? Or in John 9, there's this man that's born blind from birth. And the disciples even ask, who was it that sinned? Was it him or his parents that he was born blind? And what does Jesus say? He said it was not this man that sinned or his parents. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's probably overemphasized there some, where it wasn't happening all the time, but we're often the other way, pendulum goes. We're often functional naturalists. (laughs) That it's remove anything transcendental, remove anything spiritual from what's happening. It's physical ailments. It's got to be chemicals in our brains. It's got to be bacterium and viruses. It's rogue cells mutating. Surely doesn't have anything to do with sin. But sometimes sickness is directly caused by sin. In John 5, Jesus implies that a man that he heals that was an invalid, that he was an invalid because of sin. Or in 1 Corinthians 11, some are taking the Lord's Supper wrongly. And Paul says, that's why some of you are weak and ill, and even some of you have died. Which is also why we warn against coming forward for the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, if you don't belong to his church, if you're just living in sin. That's why we don't want you to come forward, it's actually to protect you. And I said, we can't know exactly what's caused by sin, the direct correlations or not. But I think we fail to ask the question, have I sinned often enough? That when we're sick, when things are going on, a good question to ask, is there sin in my life that I need to confess and repent of? Related to this sickness specifically or not? We don't know how that works, but we should be examining our own hearts We see that God uses prayer to heal. We shouldn't expect it to happen every time, but we should expect it to happen. Probably more than we do, more than I do. It's easy to be cynical, it's easy to put our hope and our trust strictly in medicine and doctors instead of in a Lord who heals. But God does heal, sometimes miraculously. But often he's the one using those doctors, using that medicine, using this stuff. It's called common grace that we learn more about how our bodies function, how he designed them to work in this world, and he works through those things. But we neglect the spiritual aspect of it. We should make use of those means. Don't hear me say we shouldn't go to doctors, we should pray it away. not saying that. God has given us those things as gifts to help. But we can't neglect God in the midst of it. We can't neglect to pray in faith to the one who is truly able to heal and to save. And when there's serious sickness, call for the elders. We'll come pray for you. It's a command there, actually, to do it. Call for us. And we will. So God's people are to be a people who pray for all the circumstances in their own lives and then the elders for the sick. But then also for all of us praying for one another that wounds might be healed and sins forgiven. Look at me at verse 16. So he's following on what he just said about the prayer of faith bringing healing and forgiveness. And now he shifts from the elders to the whole church. He says, therefore, because of this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in it's working. This is the only time in the Bible that we're actually told explicitly to confess our sins to one another. Usually it's referring to confessing sins to God. In Scripture, we're never told to just share our sins for the sake of sharing them. It's always for healing and for forgiveness. So the theme is to confess them to the one we have wronged. That always includes God. You can think of David saying that, against you only have I sinned when he sinned against other people, clearly. But it also includes each other. When we sin against one another, we need to confess that. I think we need to use wisdom in this. I don't think we need to go into every detail. I think that sometimes that brings more harm than good. But we need to confess when we have wronged one another. And we need to pray for each other so that there can be healing, healing. James has been talking about these kind of divisions in the church that are caused by sins, especially sins of speech. And so here he's referring to these divisions where the body is divided, where they've been speaking against one another, grumbling against one another, showing favoritism to different people in the church against others, judging them. Where we should be for one another, we should be loving one another. He says, confess your sins to each other. Pray for one another that you might be healed. When I was on a summer project with a campus ministry after my first year of college, I've been walking with the Lord for about five, six months at that point. But I got, you get put in a room with like eight guys in this like little tiny hotel room. It's miserable, but there was this one guy that got put in the room that I just did not get along with well. Like I couldn't stand him. He just got on my nerves with everything. And obviously it was all his sin. And I didn't have any. But it was just, just a joke. Um, but I'm having this really hard time with it. Because like, I, I, I actually do want to love him. But I don't. I hate him. <laughs> I don't know how to make that happen. And I'm talking to one of the, one of the leaders about it and just at my wits end I don't know what to do it's miserable like every minute I'm in there I'm just angry and he asked me if I'd been praying for him and I'm like no (laughs) duh and he challenged me to actually start praying for him every day he said it's hard to hate someone you're consistently praying for and so I did and he was right. And though I was praying for God to change him, some of that happened. But more than that, God was changing me. He was working in me. Helping me to actually love. And in doing so, he was bringing us closer together. That He was healing this rift in the body of Christ. We didn't ever become best friends. But we get along. (laughs) And I love him. Yes, who in here do you need to reconcile with? Who have you sinned against that you need to confess, that you need to pray for? Not saying you'll be best friends, but we can't have these divisions in the body. We can't have these factions. Another way maybe to put it is, is there someone in here that you don't love? Putting it positively or negatively. That's the command Jesus gives us, right, in John. "This is a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another here that you might avoid don't avoid them and pretend like they don't exist or don't let resentment seethe under the surface pray for them that you might be healed right now with covid variants and vaccines and masks maybe there are those here with whom you disagree strongly It's affecting your relationship with them. Some of you who have been vaccinated see the ones who aren't. And you're a little bit hoping they get sick so you can say, see, you should have gotten the vaccine. Or those who didn't and see people that did get the vaccine and we see breakthrough cases and say, see, it doesn't mean anything. so easy to be divided on all of this. Pray for them. And not that they'll just agree with you. But that you can love them in the midst of disagreement. You might say, that's a pretty tall order. (laughs) I don't know that prayer can do that. That's how God works through the prayers of his people. He brings about change in this world through prayer. He brings about change in us through prayer. James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And he gives this example of Elijah. And we usually put Elijah on the pedestal, right? He's there with Moses at the transfiguration That's not what he says. He doesn't emphasize that he was a prophet. He says, he has a nature just like you. He's just a person. Yet he prayed according to the will of God and it happened. You think it's too much for prayer to heal sickness or division, to reconcile people at odds with one another. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't for three and a half years. And he prayed again that it would, and it rained, and the earth bore fruit. God works through prayer. We must be people who pray. It's what it looks like to be devoted to God and reliant upon Him. And finally, we must also be a people who pursue. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The note James leaves us on is bringing back those who wander from the truth, pursuing them, going after them where they've gone astray. This isn't just the truth in this intellectual ascent. It does involve that, right? Knowing the true things, believing that they are true. But James is not content with leaving things there ever. It's actually how you enact it in your life. How does it play out in your life? So when we see brothers and sisters choosing sin, choosing to disobey God... In his design for the world, what's our response? Based on what James has said, we can assume that we should pray for them. We should. But it can't stop there. James says if you bring them back, which means you went after them. I think it's easier for us to write people off. It's hard to have those conversations. It's easy to say it's sad where their faith is heading, where their lives are leading, without ever going after them, without actually stepping into that mess in that muck. It takes time. It takes energy. It gets messy. We need to call them to obedience, but we have to be there to do it. We need to actually pursue them. Is that not what Christ has done with us? When we rebelled against God, when we rejected his rule and reign over our lives, when we think we know better, what does he do? Just say, oh, that's too bad. I wish he'd come back. No. He came after us. He pursues us. He left heaven and became a man, getting down into the muck and mire of this sinful world for us, dying on a cross, rising again to save us from death, to cover our sins by his blood, to bring us back to God, to that for which we were created, to restore us, to heal us. He did that for us. He calls us to do that for others. We think of the story of the shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one. That's what James is talking about here. One who has wandered off. And I think some of our tendency to not go after others or at least our justification for it um, is that we recognize that God has to change them. And that's absolutely true. We can't change them. God has to do it. But God uses his people. He uses us to accomplish his will in this world. Sometimes as Reformed Presbyterians, especially, I think we go so far to emphasize the necessity of God's work that we're tempted to excuse our own responsibility. Even at times, rejecting the language of Scripture. Like, how many of us are comfortable saying, I saved someone? (laughs) Right? I'm not comfortable saying that. I say, God saves. But that's what James says here. You saved their soul from death. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Become all things to all people so that I might save some. Do we die for their sins? No. Do we provide the means for their sins to be forgiven? No. But we save them by leading them to the one who ultimately brings salvation, by bringing them to Christ, who does cover their sins with his blood and saves their souls from death. We have a role to play in this. Yes, absolutely God must work. But he works through his people. Do you see someone that is wandering from the truth? They need you. They need someone to go after them, to bring them back. Pray for them, but go after them too. Pursue them. Love them as Christ has loved you. Remind them of the truth of the gospel. There's the reality that they may not return. But if they do, you will have saved their soul from death. What could matter more than that? As we live in the body of Christ, in the midst of a people who pray, And to people who pursue, we have a role to play in that. We are called to pray for ourselves and for others and to pursue those who have gone astray. That there might be healing, that there might be forgiveness of sins. As we seek to live out our active faith in complete devotion to God. The one who loves us and the one who saves us.